This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian and Stanford law professor Richard Thompson Ford about his new and valuable book, Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. In the book's introduction, Richard, you present the reader with a contradiction. You say that clothes are our most intimate and most public medium of self-expression. You also say that our unwritten dress codes can be as powerful as rules inscribed in law and enforced by police. Both points are well and truly taken. But over what historical timeline do you resolve the tensions between them? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, The historical periods that I cover in dress codes, I began with what some call the birth of fashion um, in the late Middle Ages or in the 1300s. And this is a period of time in which tailoring is coming into its own and it's transforming the way fashion works. It's, it's creating the possibility for new and very expressive forms of fashion that didn't exist before. Um, before the late Middle Ages, much of clothing for elites in particular was draped. There were draped garments, robes and the like, and that was true for both men and women. But in the late um, Middle Ages, you begin to get this technique of tailoring that allows for clothing that's much more expressive that's articulated around the body. And that clothing becomes a mode of statecraft. It becomes something that allows the powerful to assert their power um, and to express their status in society. And that gives rise to this first set of very comprehensive and quite widespread dress codes, what we might call sumptuary laws, which regulate who can wear what type of clothing according to their social position, according to their rank, according to their religion in some cases, and always according to their sex. So this first historical period from the late Middle Ages to about 1700s is characterized by a uh, a lot of law enforced by courts and um, constables and um, authorities of the state uh, regulating what people can wear. Now, in the second part of the book, I talk about the evolution of these more explicit dress codes into what are often more unstated dress codes. Clothing for the elite becomes more subtle, and the signs of status are harder to detect, although they're certainly still there. And a lot of the regulation of clothing begins to happen according to etiquette codes and um, and customs and expectations. And that's, um, now it's not that explicit dress codes have gone away. Certainly workplace dress codes, dress codes for schools, they still exist even today. But this new form of more subtle regulation becomes much more important. And so in the book, I'm looking at both of these, both explicit laws and rules that are written down, um, but also these subtler dress codes. Before we start on the historical journey, before we start with the late with the Renaissance and the fourteenth century, say a few words about antiquity because the the Greeks and Romans still had uh, some form of 
dress code. I mean, the, the, the purple stripe on the Roman toga. And, and yes. there, there, there was some, I mean, but, but the clothes were simply to mark status. I mean, it, it marked, it marked a, there was nothing individual about it. So that absolutely that in the um, in antiquity there were dress codes there were rules about um, excessive consumption and clothing did signify status but what happens in the late Middle Ages is clothing both it continues to signify status and actually in a much more elaborate and much more expressive way because tailoring allows clothing to do a lot more than a draped garment can do where um, things were signified primarily through through small embellishments and color. With tailoring, you can have uh, you know, shapes and structure, and that shaping and structure creates an entirely new kind of sartorial vocabulary that in some sense actually transforms the body. Now, elites are using this type of clothing in order to shore up their own status. So if you look at pictures, for instance, of the monarchy during Tudor England, Henry VIII, or um, Elizabeth I, they're wearing very elaborate, sumptuous clothing. And this was not just a self-indulgence. It was a way of them asserting their power and magnificence, in a sense, by transforming their very bodies into something that's almost superhuman. And in a society in which so much is communicated by spectacle, large portions of the population are illiterate, for instance. Um, this is an extremely important part of statecraft. But as you suggested, at the same time, fashion, because of this new expressiveness, is also able to express individual personality. And increasingly, people from a much broader um, segment of society, I won't say all walks of life, because certainly uh, the peasantry were not engaged in this, but wealthy merchants, wealthy tradespeople were able to afford this type of expressive clothing as well. And they used it in order to express not only a new status for their group, you know, a high-status merchant, for instance, but also to express individual personality. And so what you see emerging at this period of time in history, and I argue that fashion plays a central and often unacknowledged role in this, is the development of the ideal of individualism. Um, the ideal, as you suggest, that man, or mankind rather, than God becomes the center of cosmology. And it's a shift that you see taking place, for instance, also in the shift between story, the epic, which is about great men and great events, as they used to put it, to the novel, which is about in the individual and an individual psychology. And so fashion is participating in this, and that's where you get this tension between, on the one hand, fashion expressing social conventions and social status, but on the other hand, and increasingly, fashion expressing individual personality, which is in tension with those established statuses. Say something about the sumptuary laws at the court of Elizabeth I. And, I mean, there, there are a lot of them. I mean, how long the sword is that you can carry or what color handkerchief run down a few of those because they're that's an entertaining list Yes. So there were uh, many, many sumptuary laws passed during this period of time, not just in Tudor England, but all over Western Europe, up and down the Italian peninsula. They um, had a variety of uh, proscriptions. And in most cases, 
they regulated clothing according to one's status so that, you know, for, there'd be prescriptions that would say um, no one above the rank of a knight of a garter may wear a particular type of silk. Or they regulated the amount of fabric that could be used in clothing according to social rank. There'd be, you know, just restriction after restriction and, and, and um, act of apparel after act of apparel. They, that, that, that was the name that was used in Tudor England, for instance, the acts of apparel. They were, in some sense, chasing changes in fashion. And so as fashion changed, they had to write a new law. And here, I'll I'll read a little um, bit of one that gives you an idea of the motivations behind it. But here is the sumptuous and costly array of apparel, customarily worn in this realm, whereof has ensued and daily do chance such sundry high and notable inconveniences as to be to the great manifest and notorious detriment of the common weal, the subversion of good and politic order in knowledge and distinction of people according to their estates, preeminences, dignities, and degrees. So they say right up front, the reason we need these laws is because people are dressing a of their condition, and it's, and it's confusing people about the nature of social status. Well, yes, I mean, we'll get to this at the end, but at, at this point in time, in the year of our Lord 2021, there's a, a great deal of confusion in, in terms of what people are wearing. I, I myself find it very difficult to make sense of it. And you will explain this to us in due course, but in Elizabethan England and in the Renaissance, the, the uh, people also were marked by profession. In other words, the uh, I think you say that prostitutes in, in, in Florence have to wear certain kinds of shoes or, or certain colors. Or in, in the, um, at the court of Elizabeth, you, certain materials are... are uh, forbidden to people of of lower rank. Yes, absolutely. So, I write in the book, for instance, and, and there are all sorts of, of you know, fascinating prescriptions here. Um, and they were taken very seriously, I should note. Uh, you know, some people are tempted to believe that these were laws that were on the books but not enforced. But in fact, in Elizabethan England, for instance, there were um, uh, laws that required uh, constables to monitor the movement of people moving in and out of cities and check and make sure that they were wearing clothing that was appropriate to their status. One person I write about, the um, hapless Richard Walwyn, wore, was arrested for wearing what was described as a very monstrous and outrageous great pair of hose. And hose were these, trunk hose were these kind of puffy pants that, that stopped at the knee you might associate with someone like Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, but his punishment was that the clothing would be cut and the linings pulled out um, and, and, and then the, the destroyed garments posted in a public place as an example for all to see. As you mentioned, in um, in, in Renaissance Florence, uh, prostitutes were often required to wear a particular type of clothing in order to you know signal their their presence and their profession and make sure that it was known that they were not respectable women. And this regulation of women's attire is another very consistent theme in which women expected to exhibit both decorativeness but also modesty. And as a consequence, um, you know, constant regulation 
explanation of just how much adornment would be appropriate for a woman to wear, to wear how much um, goes too far and therefore pushes her into the category of um, a fallen woman or the sign of a, of, of a prostitute. And as you suggest, regulations and laws actually required prostitutes to wear particular types of dress. This was also true in some cases of religious attire. So in um, some northern Italian cities, Jewish women were required to wear earrings as a marker of the Jewish faith. And then, of course, well, there are nuns that have the nuns habit and monks that wear the hair shirt. I mean, they, they, in an enormous array of, of uh, costumery and, 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 and rules. It, it, I mean, one of the delights of your book are the, are the specific details. I mean, even in, I, I've read that even in Puritan New England, they had sumptuary laws. Young women were not allowed to have silk if, if, unless they had a certain amount of net worth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the, the sumptuary laws, although they started to taper off in around the 1600s, they did continue well into the 1700s. And in fact, in the early United States, there were proposals to have various types of sumptuary law. The nuns' habits are another fascinating example where what began as um, really just a form of modest woman's dress uh, evolved into a quite elaborate and quite codified costume in which each element of the nun's habit was understood to have um, symbolic and spiritual significance and, and, and regulated by laws and codes that continue, um, obviously continue to this day, but were often a subject of contestation. So, you know, at another point in the book, I write about the kind of tension between those who defended the more um, traditional nun's habit and modern women religious who wanted a more modern and streamlined version of the habit, taking cues in some cases even from fashion designers. So um, one set of one set of habits that I talk about in the book were inspired by Christian Dior, and and so this move between the traditional and the modern was expressing political tensions within Catholicism about the role of women and about the um, position of women religious in particular and in their relationship to secular society. Talk for a moment about wigs. I mean, it, I, I, I'm thinking of the 17th century and the monstrous wigs worn by Charles I and Louis XIV. What was that about and what were they made out of? Wigs signified royal or aristocratic blood. In the French tradition, it was understood to be a hereditary trait of royal blood to have long flowing hair. Um, and the wig, of course, stood in for that, um, for those that didn't have such hair, but you know, it evolved into you know, something obviously quite stylized. The large, full wig sometimes w was powdered. They were often made with human hair, the the amount of powder used to um to 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 powder powdered wigs during some periods of history was quite astounding and um a huge industry existed with respect to wig making now what happened over time was that the wig which began as clearly a form of courtly dress and aristocratic status was adapted the wig makers began to make more subdued and more modern versions and so as you moved it into the 1700s you start to get various types of 
much more abbreviated Whigs. The Whigs, for instance, that we associate with some people in early American society like Thomas Jefferson. And this more abbreviated Whig was understood to be, uh, you know, one, it was, um, it, 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 it turned into something that people thought of as a practical accoutrement and also something that could express different political ideals. So as opposed to the um, grand statement of aristocracy, the more subdued Whig um, became associated with uh, more egalitarian ideals and even in its later stages, um, democracy. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I mean, also in, in Elizabethan England or in, really up, up, up to the modern era, people have a tendency to lose their hair and also to get covered with, with lice so that the shaved head with the wig was a much easier way of presenting a handsome appearance than the, the, the constant attention that would otherwise have to be a, applied to working out your hair. Right. Yes, absolutely. And the wig makers advertised this. So as they started to expand their market beyond, uh, you know, the high aristocracy and, and, and royalty, they made exactly this argument. You know, the wig is more practical than your own hair. It's easier to deal with. It's easier to put on. And so rather than it being a big status symbol, they started to say, you know, this is just a practical thing for working people. And so it, at, at that point, people of you know, various social statuses started to wear the wig. And it also became, again, a marker of individual personality. So the wig makers started to market their wigs as well as wigs that would enhance one's individual countenance. And so the, 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 the skillful wig maker could come up with the wig that was just right for you and your face. Well, this is also, you talk about the change. First of all, there's the change in the 14th century from antiquity to the Renaissance. And then there's the change associated with the late 18th century when we come into the world of the Enlightenment and we come into the world of, of capitalism where the, the uh, wealth, money, ra rather than landed wealth becomes the uh, mover and shaker in society. And so you have merchants uh, dressing up as, as uh, noblemen of one kind or another. But Talk about this late 18th century change, ideas of democracy, re revised notions of status, and what you call the great masculine renunciation. Yes. So, as we were discussing, the forms of clothing that signified status for hundreds of years were elaborate, sumptuous. Uh, men and women wore jewelry, um, brocade, fine silks, even makeup. Military officers brought makeup and powder into the field of battle. But in the 1700s, this begins to change, and um, a new form of aristocratic dress emerges, uh, you know, first in England, because England had a you know transformation with the execution of Charles I toward more um, understated and practical clothing. And th now this corresponds to a change in political ideals and ideals of virtue. So rather than the aristocratic ideal of um, honor, we get the more enlightenment era ideal of sobriety and industriousness. 
and and so you begin to develop the streamlined clothing that started off as um, the uh, casual attire of country squires, um, but later evolves into what we now know as the three-piece suit. And and this transformation. First of all, it's exclusively masculine, at least at first. So the the um, the term coined is the great masculine renunciation, and it's the renunciation of all of this finery and opulent attire. And in ex- expressing this new ideal, it also expresses a certain type of egalitarianism, because for the first time, people of a variety of social statuses are wearing more or less the same clothing, the head of state as well as the um, lowly clerk, where the, the, the um, high aristocrat you know, as well as someone who's a teller in a bank would be wearing a similar type of garment. Now, to be sure, there's still lots of status distinctions, but those distinctions are much more subtle now, and they're based on things like fit and cut. The expense of the clothing is now hidden inside in construction rather than being displayed on the outside. And so all of this is expressing, and it's quite explicit at the time, people were actually associated this new form of dress with the ideals of human rights and democracy. Important to point out that this is only happening for men. Women continue to wear draped clothing by custom and by law. Women continue to wear elaborately adorned clothing. And so in a sense, the status competition or the status um, signaling you know, continues, one, through in subtle forms with men's clothing, but also in more elaborate forms through women's clothing. Tell us what happens as we proceed into the 19th century and, and what, what happens with bloomers in America and the uh, log cabin look of Abraham Lincoln and the Victorian and Edwardian dress. I mean, the hoop skirts and, and crinoline. And there seems to be a lot moving around in the 19th century. Yes, ab- absolutely. So, you know, many, there, there are many um, fashion trends and changes that we could talk about, but the big arc involves what this um, continuing evolution of men's clothing to become more streamlined, more modern, really. So it's expressing a modern aesthetic that you see in other areas of the arts, like architecture, for instance. The It has a degree of egalitarianism, but also, again, this hidden um, elitism that's now much more subtle. And one of the important things about that new subtlety is that it's harder to copy. So we were talking before about how maybe the merchant would emulate the elite, and this first gave rise to lots of sumptuary laws, as we've discussed. Um, Well, the new solution is to come up with something that's hard to copy. So if you look at a um, a, a late 18th, early 19th century figure like Beau Brummel, who's understood now to be symbolic of masculine vanity, his claim to fame was that his clothing was subtle. Um, It was so subtle and so streamlined that there was nothing to copy. Everything is done in very, very subtle details. So um, status is expressed now through savoir-faire rather than through opulent display. You also get the beginning of um, ready-made clothing. So Brooks Brothers uh, turning out the ready-made three-piece suit. You know, again, a real democratization of a certain type of, of, of fashion. In women's clothing, the um, renunciation of opulence does not happen. In women's clothing, in some sense, there's an even greater divergence symbolically between men and women's clothing that happens after this great 
masculine renunciation. Women are wearing heavy petticoats. They're wearing corsets, clothing that's quite cumbersome, you know, particularly elite women. But really, women of all walks of life are wearing draped clothing. It's imperative that a woman be draped below the waist. A woman wearing trousers in some, in many contexts, could be arrested um, for indecent exposure. And trousers became, on women, became a sexual fetish in during this period of time and all the way through the early 20th century. You mentioned the bloomers. So the bloomers were the first it represented one of the first comprehensive attempts to reform women's clothing, to make it more practical, and to make it more symbolically in line with these modern ideals that I've been discussing. It took off and was a huge fashion trend for a while. On both sides of the Atlantic, there were women's dress reform movements, both in the United States and in England, and some form of a bloomer-like um, women's pants were one of the main garments that were advocated for. But it ended in failure. Uh, it was condemned uh, as immoral, it was ridiculed, and eventually it fell into disuse. Even Amelia Bloomer herself eventually wound up um, wearing a crinoline, which was this, this big cage hoop skirt. And what's interesting about the crinoline is, although from the modern eye, it looks extremely cumbersome, it was actually a big advance forward in comfort and ease for women as compared to layers and layers of skirts, which was what preceded it. So the crinoline um, emerged. Now, it wasn't an especially practical garment, having said that. Um, and in fact, there were lots of crinoline fires um, that took place because of these huge hoop skirts with lots of air circulating underneath um, could easily catch on fire. I, I have some images of that in the book. So women were fighting for a new form of attire that was both more practical and more symbolically empowering, but they didn't succeed until the early 20th century with the emergence of the flappers. And although we think of the flappers today as kind of frivolous, you know, Daisy Buchanan in, in The Great Gatsby seems to be the, the image that comes to mind, someone who's frivolous and, and, and flighty and interested only in fun and pleasure. In fact, the flappers were a class diverse um, an ethnically diverse group of women, many of them working women, and the, the, the new fashions that were streamlined, and for the first time women beginning to wear um, pants and be accepted, this was a um, really the first uh, successful reform of women's attire to make it, in some sense, carry on some of the innovations that menswear had taken on um, over 100 years earlier. Right, and it's a very abrupt change. I mean, when you think of the costume of the women of fashion aboard the Titanic in 1912, and then and then the dress of the flappers in 1920, 21 in New York. I mean, it's 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 that abrupt a change. Yes. Right. Uh, move move forward now. And talk about the so so that the flapper change in. 1920, let's say, is is the equivalent of the, it, it could be called the great feminine renunciation, right? Yes. That's 100 years later, all right? So since then, on what sort of road have we come down? I mean, where are we now and how did we get here? 
Uh, yes. Well, in the 20th century, I, I, I took about several things that uh, occur. There, there are questions involving race in the United States. And it's worth noting that in the 1700s, there were laws that prohibited African-Americans from dressing above their condition. So there's a ongoing struggle with respect to how people of color and other subordinated groups can present themselves, which expresses, you know, to some extent, a contradiction. Dressing too well was considered to be uppity, and um, not only law, but social custom and um, private violence was used to enforce the subordinate status of various uh, racial groups. At the same time, those groups were using uh, the, the, the sartorial symbols of um, conventional fashion, both in order to demand individual dignity and dignity for their group, um, but also in innovative and one might even say kind of critical or mocking ways. And that also met with a lot of social resistance. So the zoot suit, for instance, is it's a conventional suit, but it's exaggerated and flamboyant in a way that the typical suit wasn't. And in the 1940s, there were zoot suit riots throughout the United States to punish people wearing this new form of clothing. And in um, Los Angeles and in California, people actually proposed outlawing uh, the zoot suit. Well, I mean, I mean, I think of the Harlem Renaissance and I think of the magnificently dressed black musicians and, and, and uh, <laughs> resplendent. I mean, what is the cakewalk? Where does that come from? I mean, isn't that truly elegant uh, black dressing up to, to uh, fare thee well? Absolutely. There was a huge tradition of, you know, very elegant attire among African-Americans. Um, the, the zoot suit is a very um, stylized and exaggerated version of it, but the tradition of elegant and um, refined attire among African-Americans is quite long. It really does go back to the time of slavery and moving forward. Um, that kind of elegant dress was an important symbol of racial pride and one that um, carries through to the civil rights movement. So when you look at the civil rights movement and, and the March on Washington, for instance, or um, the lunch counter sit-ins of the 1960s, th these are people dressed in their Sunday best. And that mode of dress, it wasn't just a way of trying to ingratiate oneself with the uh, mainstream of the bourgeoisie. I think sometimes people look at it that way, but that's a mistake. It was also, um, and more importantly, it was, a, a, it was an assertion and a demand for dignity. And it was understood in that context as something that was very important to racial pride. Because that's a point that you make all the way through this book, which is fundamental, which is that dress is, is status not only saying where you belong in the world, but also how you feel about yourself. Yes, absolutely. I mean, from, from this, this earliest moment, which um, I described as the birth of fashion in the late 1300s, you have this, this um, dual function where on the one hand, fashion is about social status and social position, but on the other hand, it's about individuality. And that individual aspect is really what I think defines modern fashion. It's the way that people can express their own individual personality. And it's the way, it's not just a mode of expression, but it's 
also a mode of really shaping the self by what one wears on one's own body. And that um, moves throughout history. So in each context that uh, I described, there's both the attempt to make a social statement, but also among people, one that's deeply personal and that involves um, psychological comfort and that involves um, really the, con the, the construction of the unique individual self, that one of the ways that people shape themselves and their own personality along with things like individual biography are is individual uh, an individual relationship to the body through fashion right i mean it's it's not only a symbol of where you are but also who you are and that's that that's the that's the energy in 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 the uh, constant evolution of of uh, fashion fashion you know changes and evolves to meet the circumstances and 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 different attitudes by people toward one another yes and that explains why people care so much about it and why we have so many rules and regulations around it and so many social struggles uh, you know, I, as a, a professor of law, I teach employment discrimination and civil rights laws, and I've been surprised at how many lawsuits evolve, uh, uh, involve um, dress codes of various kinds. But it's that, that, that tension between the personal and the political, if you will, between the social meaning of fashion and the um, deeply personal, deeply felt connection to clothing and to the individual body that gives so much of the energy to the evolution of fashion and also so much of the energy to the struggles around it. Talk about the, uh, I mean, I, I remember myself going, I was a reporter for the Herald Tribune in 1962, and I remember going to a large uh, afternoon meeting in, in, in Harlem to listen to Malcolm X, and the, the, everybody was well-dressed. I mean, the, the girls were all wearing Mary Jane shoes and white socks, and the, the boys were all in suit and tie. I mean, and they were wanting to feel good about themselves. So that use of refined fashion as you know, it, it, as both a political statement and a, a sense of psychological comfort, it's been very important in racial justice struggles. Um, and you can see it in the attire of the Nation of Islam, as you know, the example that you're you're suggesting. You can see it in the mainstream civil rights movement. Now, yeah. um, what's another thing? What what happens as we move forward is that people have different relationships to what. Um, politically empowering and psychologically empowering fashion is. So a new generation of civil rights activists dresses in a very different way. If you look, um, and I have kind of corresponding images in the book, but you'll have the March on Washington and then um, the, the members of SNCC who dress in workwear and overalls and in solidarity with the people that they're trying to organize, a very different approach, but still one that's quite self-conscious. Uh, it's not an accident and it's not people are just wearing what's comfortable. They're wearing something with a very specific sense of what it symbolizes and what it means for them. And then you move um, a little further in history to, for instance, the Black Panthers. Um, yet again, a very self-conscious use of clothing and self-presentation with a clear 
connection between the personal and the political. In the Black is Beautiful movement, people thought that it was important to develop a new and distinctive Black aesthetic that was suited to um, African Americans, particularly um, around things like hairstyles. And they saw that as a political statement. It wasn't an accident. The Black Panthers had a minister of culture who um, who, who was you know thought thought about these kinds of aesthetic um, statements. And so in each step along the way, clothing and fashion are extremely important to um, broader political movements and, and, um, and goals. But sometimes the codes get hard to read. In other words, you, you make the point that the, uh, you know, the very rich billionaires among us, I mean, many of them in Silicon Valley, but also in, in New York, make a point of dressing like um, uh, serfs. <laughs> really, I mean, you know, they walk around in rags, sort of pretending that they that they're they're not rich. What what is that about? Yes. So that's in a way that's the um, the apotheosis of the trend that started with the great masculine renunciation. So you begin with the idea that we're going to cast off finery in favor of something more refined and streamlined. But one of the um, ideals that begins to emerge and becomes more and more powerful as the 20th century wears on is an ideal of authenticity. It's that the personal relationship should really reflect something real and authentic and not contrived and not to put on. And so that ideal taken to its extreme leads people to say, you know, I should just wear gray t-shirts every day because that's the most unassuming thing I can do. Now, in fact, that's a fashion statement of its own. And it's interesting that some of the, um, you know, the, 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 the big names in Silicon Valley actually make the fashion statement explicit. So Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, in wearing his gray t-shirts, said something like this. This isn't an exact quote, but it's a paraphrase. Um, I wear gray t-shirts every day because I don't want to think about um, what, I, what I'm wearing. I don't want to waste energy on that. If I were to waste any time on trivial things like what I wear, I wouldn't be doing my job to make Facebook the best company it can be. So now he's ascribed moral significance to this. And I think that trend is part of what's driving this, um, you know, this shift in toward billionaires dressing down. It's this idea that we have loftier things on our minds. Um, there's also a sort of reverse snobbery involved in this because when some people can dress down because they can get away with it. If you're the CEO of the company and you're someone of wealth and high status, you can wear whatever you want. You don't care what other people think. So in a sense, there's an inversion in which the people who are dressing well in today's environment are the people who need to care what other people think. It's the bank teller, not the high status banker who needs to wear the suit. The high status banker wears a Patagonia fleece and a button down shirt to, in part in order to signal the fact that I'm not in the category of bankers that has to wear a suit anymore. So you've had the status conscious almost completely inverted. I, 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 I can remember that happening in my own case. I mean, I, I was at Yale in 1954 and the upscale clothes store was J Press. And if you went to J Press to buy white saddle shoes, which were the de rigueur uh, shoe, if you bought them pre-scuffed, 
It was more expensive than if you bought them brand new. In other words, <laughs> the, whole, the, the whole point was to look like you'd, you know, you'd been living in them forever, right? <laughs> it was it was it was a form of dressing down to signify um, moral superiority. Ah, fascinating. Yeah, and and that you'd had them all along, so you didn't just show up at Yale. And for the first time, buy these shoes. You you've been wearing these since you were you know out of diapers. That, then you're a social climber if you're buying them new. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a type uh, listen, of dress code. This is this is a wonderful book, uh, Richard. Do you have a final word before we fade to black? <laughs> Well, I would just say one of my main ambitions for this book is to get people to take self-presentation and clothing and style seriously. I think there's a, a widespread view that it's trivial, insignificant, and not worthy of intellectual attention. And through looking at rules that regulating this, I, I, I hope to have demonstrated that it's something that people have long cared about a great deal and that we still care about a great deal. Yes, we do. Yeah. I mean, it's in a gigantic industry. I mean, right. hundreds of billions of dollars, right? The, uh, Absolutely. And then you also say that, that we have more emphasis on dress code now than we did a few years ago. I mean, the schools, restaurants, bars, gambling casinos, all kinds of rules for dress. Tell the story of the, of the, the restaurant in California where the the gentleman can have his tie cut off. Ah, yes. Um, there, it, it's fascinating because, so this is a dress town restaurant. I believe it's called the Pinnacle Peak Steakhouse. But um, it, instead of requiring a necktie, they, they forbid it. And so if you come in wearing a necktie, that someone will come up with a pair of scissors and cut it off. So, <laughs> you know, again, we care, but we care, you know, it's the, the, the reverse here. You're supposed to relax, take that tie off. But the number of dress codes, as you mentioned, high school dress codes, they are on the rise. Um, so although we think we're laid back and unassuming and, and care less and less about these type of things, the evidence seems to suggest the contrary, that um, as much as ever, we um, very much care about what we wear and about what other people wear. Well, your book is a wonderful uh, discussion of that caring pleasure talking with you. I've been talking today with Richard Thompson Ford about his new book, Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. Wonderful book. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.